0: Welcome to the Retzel Health Law Hotspot. Health Law Hotspot is a podcast for physicians and health professionals that covers the legal issues and trends that affect the healthcare industry. Hi, everyone. This is Erica Adler. Welcome to the Health Law Hotspot. Today, I'm joined by David Hockman, who's a shareholder at Retzel and Andrus, as well as a part of our healthcare practice group. I'm also a shareholder and part of our healthcare practice group. But our special guest today is Daniel Grauman. Uh, Daniel is co-founder, chair, and managing director and CEO of Verilon Partners. He has 40 years of experience working with healthcare clients across the U.S., including community and teaching hospitals, health systems, PHOs, clinically integrated networks, and health plans. His specialty, as it relates to what we're going to be talking about today, is evaluating and planning for mergers, acquisitions, and affiliations, as well as the role of valuations when it comes to physician practices, hospitals, specialty care facilities, and ambulatory care facilities. So, thank you so much for joining us today, Dan. We're very happy to have you here.
1: You're welcome. And uh, it's a pleasure to be able to uh, chat with both of you.
0: So, today we're going to be talking about healthcare valuations and the important role they play if someone is thinking about doing a transaction. And not only the role they play, but also understanding a little bit about how they are derived and what the different factors are uh, that can impact evaluation. So why don't we start by you just telling us a little bit about what do you see going on right now in the M&A world? Are you seeing a lot of activity on your end? Talk to us a
1: little bit about it. Sure. Uh, We are seeing a great deal of activity. Uh, And uh, the most recent blockbuster news, of course, is uh, Amazon uh, jumping in and acquiring One Medical. Uh, So this is a multi-billion dollar transaction uh, where uh, Amazon, the disruptor (laughs) in these times, has decided uh, to see how they can play and participate uh, in the healthcare industry. And uh, of course, from their perspective, they need to keep growing as a company. And how do you possibly grow as a company like that unless you are in healthcare, g- given how uh, much of a, our economy it represents. Uh, but uh, beyond that, uh, that that big news, uh, for a few years now, uh, there's been a lot of m and activity. We, we are in the midst and, and an ongoing, um, o- ongoing trend of consolidation in healthcare, and more specifically, as it pertains to medical practices. Uh, really, what we're witnessing, what we're experiencing, those of us that you know live and work in this industry each and every day, is the corporatization. Uh, of medicine and of the practice of medicine, uh, good or bad, uh, with all of its challenges. Uh, but that is what is underway, and the various players that are active in m and whether it's private equity firms, uh, other aggregators, um, hot health systems, of course, believe that uh, things we will be better off. Things will be better off um, if they. Uh, move move in this direction. So there's a, a lot of activity, and I could go on and on about that. Of mm-hmm. course, uh, sure. but happy to to pause and.
0: Um... Well, we're seeing a lot of M and A as well. <clears throat> we do a lot of uh, selling, in particular, of physician practices. Are you seeing any um, particular specialties more than others right now? Uh,
1: well, you know, the uh, that's an interesting question. I, I think when. When we began to witness and see uh, the uptick in activity, a lot of it was centered around primary care physicians. Uh, and the reason for that is there's a premise among these aggregators, the, all the players that we, I mentioned, that uh, the the big opportunity is in value-based payment, value-based care, uh, and population health. So if you if you can aggregate the primary care physicians, which is sort of the gatekeeper to the healthcare delivery system, and then the way the the arrangements work in population health, it has to do with, you know, the patients that are associated with those primary care physicians, uh, that that is, uh, there's a lot of opportunity there uh, as as these organizations grow bigger and participate in risk contracts and capitation and the like, but, you know, since then, we've seen a lot of activity in various other specialties that seem to be conducive to, be, to deriving benefits from size and scale. Uh, there's some surgical specialties, uh, you see activity in dermatology, we're seeing activity in orthopedics, you see um, ophthalmology. Um, you know, so many, 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 uh, other specialties, uh, surgical and medical specialties, even uh, cancer care and the like, uh, are, are all in play. And the, the aggregators, the buyers, the acquirers believe uh, that there's opportunity, uh, that, that, that value can be created, uh, you know, over time by bringing these together. Yeah.
2: So Dan, can you comment a little bit about the difference between a hospital buyer of a practice and a private equity buyer? Yeah, why a physician might want to have one versus the other?
1: Well, uh, those are definitely on the opposite ends of the spectrum, probably in terms of the characteristics of those uh, buyers, uh, and uh, you know I think it there's pros and cons, uh, and it really depends on on the physician or the business that that's uh, that is in play. Um, you know, a private equity firm on the on the one hand make, uh, you know, no question about it, uh, they are interested in acquiring, building it up and then selling. Uh, and that is their purpose, their, their reason for being is they take money from investors and they deploy that and invest it uh, in, in businesses and in companies and in relevant to this conversation, of course, in position businesses and practices And they're going to be very aggressive and they're going to grow it and they're looking to make it bigger and more profitable and increase the value and exit. And their typical time frame might be, you know, five to seven years, could be less, could be more depending on the business. So that is what they wake up every day thinking about. And so as a physician contemplating that, um, you need to just go in with your eyes wide open and understand it not necessarily good or bad. It's just the reality. Uh, and they typically will also want um, uh, the, the seller or the physician or physician group to be involved and aligned economically in a meaningful way. And the best way that they do that is they are likely to not buy 100% of your business or practice. They may buy, uh, they're going to likely want a controlling stake is 60 to 80% uh, but then you're going to stay involved in a meaningful way and you'll continue to have a significant portion of the, of, of the ownership of the equity of that practice. So when it gets sold, you will participate in that. And, you know, in the business, it's called the second bite of the apple. Uh, some, some call it that. And, uh, and so that is sort of what you're looking at and, and everything that comes along with that in terms of how you run a business, how you grow the business. And, and those kind of pressures over that time period is what a private equity type uh, acquirer might look like. Um, at sort of the other end of the continuum, a hospital or health system acquire is going to be different. Uh, uh, they may be constrained in part by how they value and how much they can pay uh, because they have to live in the world of fair market value as defined by all the regulators that... That uh, your very competent legal counsel here can help you understand, uh, and um, uh, and they're also likely to have a much longer term view. You know, they they want you to be part of the health system, uh, be part of the clinically integrated organization. Uh, of course, to try to keep as much of the business and the care that's rendered to the, your patients within the delivery network. And they will look to, once you're ready to retire, uh, succeed you in your practice with a replacement. So I, I think it's a much longer horizon. Um, the dollars were likely to be different, uh, and, but they could be possibly a little kinder, a little, a little friendlier partner, believe it or not, <laughs> uh, and um, uh, relative to, to private equity. And, and again, it's, it's, these, uh, these are options. And, and I think it's an incredible time from the perspective of a physician, if you think about it. Where did you ever have this many options to, to consider, right? in terms of partnering? You can con- continue to go it alone as you always did, although that's harder every day. Uh, but now you have all these different flavors of, of potential, you know, business partners uh, to help navigate uh, the future, increasingly complex healthcare care system. So it's it's not a bad thing to be fa- faced with those choices and options.
0: Right. I, I mean, th- those are obviously very different buyers and how they're structured. Depending, yeah. You know, right. the state you're in as well. But, um, you know, when we talk about the purchase price, which is obviously... A lot of doctors are either looking to cash in by selling. Some of, of them course. use it as an exit strategy. that's very common. And of course, you're not going to get the same dollar amount from a hospital. And so there are other cultural or you know, emotional reasons that people often will choose to go with a hospital. Right. In terms of the private equity deals, we do see some incredible numbers. Um, particular specialties, we're seeing amazing multiples. Um and I guess
1: uh, unprecedented, I would add. Yeah. Unprecedented. Oh, <laughs>
0: yeah. uh, you know, we're, we're not talking about, you know, veterinary medicine today, but if you really want to talk about unprecedented, uh, you know, twenty twenty-one times multiples is what oh we're my seeing gosh. there. So well, okay. that's a little crazy. So just in general, I mean, mm-hmm. what can doctors expect is the range when we're looking at EBITDA, and I'll ask you to kind of generally describe what that is. But when we're looking at valuing a practice, many buyers will use EBITDA, and they'll talk about it as a multiple. So a lot of practices will, you know, or specialties will sell between five and seven multiple. And then we see some specialties, derm et cetera, where we're seeing some higher. It depends on the buyer, depends on the region of the country, depends on if it's a cash practice versus insurance practice. So there's a lot of different factors that go into how much money you're going to get. But generally speaking, I don't think a lot of doctors really understand what EBITDA is, why some practices are worth more, what these multiples really even mean. Yeah. So kind of hoping you can give us a little bit of insight so everyone listening will maybe come away with a better understanding?
1: Sure, I'll, I'll be happy to try. Um, so first of all, my recommendation is go watch Shark Tank uh, <laughs> because if you watch a couple episodes, and we all have, let's admit it, it's fun. Uh, my wife is addicted to it, so I end up watching a lot of it. Uh, and um, so they talk about EBITDA multiples all the time. Uh, and so what, what, is, what, what is this all about? So EBITDA, what it actually stands for is earnings before interest taxes and depreciation and amortization. So a bunch of accounting lingo, but let's sort of cut through it. And uh, it's really a proxy, an estimate of the cash, extra cash, cash profits, if you will, uh, that a business um, generates, or is capable of generating, uh, or is expected to generate in the future. That, that's what EBITDA means. So think cash, extra money, cash profits. Maybe right now, it's the extra money that uh, a physician owners get to put in their pocket and distribute at the end of the year. Um, so that's what EBITDA means. So a business, of course, the way it's valued, typically, it's a function of the the cash that a business is expected to generate in the future that that is how businesses are all businesses regardless of what industry it's in that's how you've val- that's how they're valued uh, <clears throat> and so uh the reality is that acquires and the uh, the folks that work in this space actually use some very sophisticated methods uh to value a business including the preparation of of projections, detailed budgets going forward, uh, forecasts, and they make assumptions about growth rates and maybe new lines of business or revenue generation opportunities that a business, that a practice might get into, uh, you know, certain types of uh, procedures or cases or surgeries or or whatever it might be. Uh, and, And they might crank and crunch through a lot of those numbers Uh, three five seven years into the future and they will using valuation techniques uh, they will uh, use a discounted cash flow methodology and uh, using a bunch of uh, formulas they will figure out what the business is worth using that method they'll also take a look at what other comparable business has bought and sold for just like your house you know you look at your neighbors and the house down the street and you decide uh, with that, you look at what that was sold for, and it's an indicator of what your house might be sold for. But you make adjustments for the size of the, size of the house, the number of bedrooms, right? So the same kind of comparables analysis takes place uh, when you look at any other business, including physician uh, practices and related healthcare businesses. So valuators, acquires, private equity firms, health systems, they go through all this analysis. And at the end of the day, it's a very convenient way to state the answer and the conclusion as an expressing it as a multiple, as a multiple of that EBITDA or that cash proxy that we described before. Uh, And so the result of all the work is that, you know, practices get sold for six times EBITDA in this particular specialty, or 15 times EBITDA uh, primary care with a lot of, uh, if it's a big, uh, you know, uh, huge practice, or as you said, 21 times EBITDA uh, in veterinary medicine. So um, it, that that multiple that we hear about that you, you know, you see the, the Mark Cubans and his uh, Uh, colleague billionaires talk about on Shark Tank, or your colleagues around the country club might talk about when you're playing golf, is the result of a a lot of work. And it's sort of the uh, where, where, um, you know, it's an easy way for everyone that participates in this space and this game and the M&A world to quickly sort of gauge and benchmark um, a particular uh, transaction. So I know it's a little wordy, but that's yeah. how I think about it. So, <laughs> what,
2: what, are the, what are some of the factors that are going to cause the EBITDA to go either be the high end of the range or the low end of the range?
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that's a really good question. You know, there, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, so it can be uh, what the growth and expansion potential is. Uh, so where is this business now and how much can it grow? Uh, It might, uh, another factor might be the ages of the physicians and how long they're going to be there and whether there's any risk associated with uh, uh, physicians that are expected to retire in the near term and have to be replaced. There's always concerns about, you know, the stability of the patient base. Um, It might be, um, it it might be, uh, it have to do in part with how stable the history has been Uh, Has it been reliable or has it been a little rocky? Uh, And this has been uh, particularly difficult to evaluate coming right off. uh, I'm not sure we're out of the pandemic, but hopefully we are in terms of certainly acute stage. But if you look at the last couple of years, it's very messy to understand uh, what that means for the future. Um, A lot of healthcare providers are experiencing a permanent change as a result of the pandemic to their business, sometimes to the plus, sometimes to the minus, right? It just depends on the nature of the practice, how many, um, uh, what types of patients perhaps uh, we're seeing. Certainly hospitals and emergency rooms are down and, and they are, uh, it's it sort of, it was a one-time adjustment which will now resume growth. Sadly, a lot of elderly Uh, were lost during the pandemic. They were very high utilizers of healthcare services, very high utilizers. And, you know, we lost a million people, right? And, uh, and, and they're not in the picture anymore. Uh, And, and also a lot of patients got very comfortable because they were forced to alternatives to going to the emergency room, urgent care, telemedicine, things that they went to the emergency room for that they really never needed to go to the emergency room for, but they did, and some of those got admitted overnight because uh, defensive medicine is practiced. You have to be careful. You have chest pain. Well, we've got to admit you and see. Now, you know, a lot of that stuff just isn't happening. So these are adjustments that that um, I think are in place, and and maybe some of them are good. Um, and uh, so, sort of sorting through all that, I know I'm going a little off in of the tangent, but it's a factor in sort of under driving uh, conclusions. Yeah.
0: Well, it, COVID is definitely a factor. How about what's going on in the economy right now? Do you think that's going to push? Yeah,
1: yeah, the that, valuation?
2: that.
1: So, uh, you know, it, I think I don't think we've quite seen yet the impact mm-hmm. because a lot of the transactions and deals that we've we all work on that maybe recently cl- uh, were, were, were closed, um, we didn't have the clear impact of the higher interest rates yet. There was some anticipation of it, mm-hmm. but very quickly here, the Fed has cranked up interest rates. And on private equity transactions, they use debt in those transactions, right? They use the investor's capital, but then they go and they have, Arrangements with lots of lenders and they use debt to uh, double or triple their money (laughs) that they have available to fund growth. So the cost of that debt is going to go up and those those companies that acquired have to have to uh, handle that increased expense. So I think there's going to be a a sort of a little bit of a, a depression in terms of the the impact of that particular factor. However, I think the good news is there's still so much activity and interest in consolidation that it'll really I, I don't think we're gonna see a major impact if yeah. you if you know what I'm saying. It'll, so maybe the result is they'll be just sort of stay even for a while.
2: Yeah. It'll be interesting to see yeah. if some if the people who are not good operators, how they're going to be affected by yeah. high interest rates and the right. slowing of the economy. I think right. you might see some practices that were purchased for a lot of money not yeah. being economically viable going forward because of all the debt.
1: Yeah, and it, right. It depends on how they're structured and how much debt has been layered onto those mm-hmm. practices. Remember, they were largely debt free or had little debt before. So uh, the, the prior owners of physicians could sort of, you know, they'd earn less money for sure in tough times, but they have a way of sort of navigating all that. Once it gets acquired, you layer on debt, you, know, that, you can't just do away with the debt. It's sort of a permanent fixed expense, and now it's going to go up higher. So, um.
0: are, you, are you seeing any alternatives to traditional EBITDA? Um, I know I've seen a couple of transactions where they really aren't using EBITDA. They're using a multiple of a management fee you know, a multiple of some other factors? Have you seen anything? Is that like a trend or is that like a one-off kind of approach?
1: Yeah, I, I'm not seeing, I, I can't say that I've seen that much of it to say that it was a trend. Uh, I mean, certainly <clears throat> we haven't talked about it, but there are a lot of uh, practices or businesses that are more of a startup nature and there they may not even uh, be profitable or generating any cash profits. So we've, uh, you know, certainly seen revenue multiples uh, in those kinds of instances, um, uh, and um, but I haven't seen much beyond that.
0: Myself. Right. Yeah. And you don't anticipate <clears throat> that you think EBITDA is probably still going to continue to be the the best measurement approach. So if you're a practice and you're looking to maybe sell down the road. I guess what you should be doing is talking to someone like you about what your numbers look like, how to get your EBITDA up, and other factors like that. Or what would you recommend?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think look, it it it's it, not that difficult with with uh, using uh, our help or the help of you know any financially oriented advisor or your some tax accountants have this uh, expertise. Not all, but some. Um, to start sort of framing and looking at your practice the way an acquirer or an investor will look at your practice. And it's different typically than the way you may always have looked at, you know, a physician may have looked at it. Uh, and, And often, of course, a lot of smaller physician practices or related businesses don't even have. Uh, financial reporting that's very sophisticated. So we're very accustomed to u- using tax returns and, you know, Quickening, QuickBooks type statements and extracts as as opposed to having an audit or a compilation, you know, done by an external accounting firm. Uh, but and, and I'm not suggesting that is n- abs- necessary, but it's helpful to start to sort of even just. Um, Uh, From a formatting perspective, uh, look at your financials in a way that an investor would and and sort of laying everything out. And there are are important adjustments that you need to think about, Uh, notably, uh, especially in a physician business, the physician's compensation, right? So the compensation is typically a the result of what's left over i mean there may be a draw there may be a base salary but you know if there's money left over at the end of the year it's going to get distributed or bonused out in some fashion so that needs to be looked at and compared to what the fair market value might be for compensation for a particular specialty uh so there are adjustments what we call as evaluator normalization adjustments uh that one uh you could start to do so you have a a real sense of what um, how investor would look at the business. And and it's really trying to create a picture of what it would look like post-transaction. After it's bought, what would that income state look like? What would that cash flow look like? Um, And a a big part, of course, these discussions and transactions is not only what you get paid up front, the value of the practice, but what you keep getting paid uh, as an employee going forward. Uh, in terms of uh, your compensation. So that is an important uh, element to to at least think about.
0: That makes sense. And you know, one of the things we find when we are working on these transactions are unexpected issues. Doctors weren't compensated in accordance with the law. Doctors, uh, there was billing done Uh, that violated, you know, particular statute, like, so, you know, there's a lot of things that come out of the due diligence related to doing a transaction. Uh, When you get involved, are you picking up any of those things um, through your own financial review that can then be uh, corrected uh, so that it is not later, um, you know, a bump in the road, so to speak, for a potential buyer, or is that not the kind of thing you're looking for?
1: Um, Well, we look at that, If we are engaged by a buyer uh, to do some diligence, due diligence work, and quality of earnings, we look at it at a high level. If we're engaged to perform evaluation, so one of the things that you know, one of the things we're always taking a a quick look at is, effect, essentially coding, right? So, are there issues uh, in the coding of the services that are provided? That's an area that's subject to a little judgment and subjectivity. Uh, And so uh, we can test what the distribution is of the CPT codes and sort of see, wait a second, this appears to be a practice that has a pretty normal patient base. Why are there a lot of these types of codes here? It sort of doesn't make sense to us. There may be a good reason for it but it's an area to sort of dig into it. So we can sort of lighten a small red flag that uh, uh, in in an analysis. We also can look at the expenses. Of course, it's not uncommon for a lot of small businesses of all types, including physician practices to run personal expenses through the practice that will probably no longer be allowed post transaction. So it's important to at least understand that. That can be corrected and changed going forward. Uh, but we've gotten involved in some really sticky ones where there's a lot of family members that have been, uh, you know, sort of on the payroll but not really working, or they're participating in retirement plans. You know, a lot of techniques that have been used over the years. Uh, not, not necessarily bad advice from tax advisors and others to, to help physicians out uh, maximize, you know, the, the finances. But going forward, some of those things may, may not be permitted, may not make sense. They're not necessarily illegal, uh, but they don't, just don't work when someone else owns the business. Uh, so you might as well really have a deep understanding of that, eyes wide open. Those are the kind of adjustments you might make uh, where you'll say, wait a second, I don't get to you know, run my car through the practice. No, you don't. But guess what? by we just freed up $50,000 a year of the EBITDA, you know, what, which now is gonna get monetized and is gonna create more value that you'll get upfront. So, you know, there's those kinds of things that I think are helpful to understand.
0: That's a great point. Yeah. Increasing your EBITDA by making some slight adjustments gets you a bigger purchase price, which is worth more than...
1: Right, and it's, all, it's subject to capital gains tax, right? So that's uh, also preferential. Um,
2: I mean, this, the issue about coding is, is one that I've come across in a couple of sales where the buyer discovered this in due diligence. Uh, it, it's and-
1: very rare that if it's a significant practice that a coding audit is not done at this point. So it's almost always a suggestion on our part if we're involved early on, unless it's a small, a really small practice, then it may not, you know, it's not that material. But these days, you know, the practices are larger. That's what I'm saying. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I see it larger, you know, in terms of price, I I would say is where I see like, you know, bigger prices, not necessarily bigger practices. Right. So.
1: Oh, um, yeah. That's what I meant. I I meant. You're right.
0: Yeah. So I could have a single doctor getting a huge purchase price and they're going to do it, but I could have a three person group, not a huge purchase price, and right. no one's gonna bother, right? So yeah. yeah,
1: agreed. Yeah. So that's right. why I, I said materiality, that I right. meant <laughs> dollars. Yeah. Right.
0: And most of these small groups are are lacking in <clears throat> formal auditing process, compliance plans, right. etc. So there's a whole lot more going on, right? From a legal perspective, which is a totally different topic, but you it's just the tip of the iceberg to the stuff that you're pointing out, but it, it's a long it's a big, you know, huge pot of items for people to do when they're thinking about selling, there's a lot of preparation that can be
1: done. Yeah. And, you know, why not, even if, if it's like a little idea that you have two, three years down the road, you know, depending on your age and your own exit and succession plans, why not take a little extra step with getting help from whomever uh, and, and start to lay out the, you know, the practice in that way. It, it, I think it would be very insightful and informative for potential I, sellers to do that.
0: I think so, too. Yeah. And, it's, uh, you know, there's a couple of other accounting related items. We often find the doctors are okay. surprised when they are a C-corp, right? And they want to sell and they have non-competes. And they're like, oh, we'll just terminate them, you know, so we could sell our goodwill. But, you know that's a problem. But if they plan ahead of time, maybe there's some things that can be done right. several years ahead, right? right? So things like that, that they might be able to plan. Some of them wish they were a different kind of entity, but if you can't switch entities, at the last minute. Like not, that, so you know? <laughs> yeah, not so easy. Yeah, if, but if you plan this stuff, from what I understand, and I am totally not an accounting or tax person, but Every time we have these conversations with our doctors, they're like, oh, we'll just do this. We'll just do that. You know? <laughs> and then the accounting or tax person will say, no, you know, you need three years. You need five years in between. The
1: IRS would not that. like that. Yes. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. So yeah. I think
0: planning ahead for something yeah. down the road is really the way to go uh, from, from that perspective, for sure.
1: Right. And if you think about it, I mean, I, I don't know what portion of physician practices have already been acquired, but it's a big number. It's a big percentage, right? I mean, Optum alone, what employs, what, 80,000 physicians? Uh, uh, You know, I'm sure Amazon is going to (laughs) be trying to catch up to them. Uh, And and you have, you you just have this aggregation pace. So the point is, is that fewer and fewer and fewer physicians are going to End up remaining independent, uh, and th- there will be some, you know, for sure. Uh, this is sort of selling out is not for everybody, and I, with full respect for that. Right. But the 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 odds are, given the landscape and the environment, uh, is, is that most, you know, uh, practices are going to be looking at this. And, and
0: right. well, it's interesting. Uh, we had a, we had a guest on uh, a few weeks ago who said that. He saw the trend as a lot of these deals being undone, and more doctors going back to independent practice. So I I think you know I'm all for obviously David and I work with independent Mm -hmm. practices, we're we're all for supporting them. But the trend certainly seems to be doctors becoming employees of hospitals or selling out. Um, You know I'll I'll be very interested to see kind of what the future holds, and um, you know, and it's not just about physician practices, but the whole healthcare system is, yeah. you know, up for some major changes or at least requires- Oh
1: yeah, it's up for major disruption. Yeah, yeah. so and who knows we're, we're, how
0: that's going to impact it yeah. everything
1: going forward, but. Right, well, I, I can see that some of the models that are being established now may not work and may fail and, they'll, and restructuring will take place, but sort of for physicians to, Become traditionally independent the way they were in the past is, I don't think that's that likely. I I can see them restructuring it, maybe gaining back some ownership in an enterprise, but probably in partnership with some other entity that brings the benefits that you otherwise can only get through size and scale. You know, population health, technology, digital, you know, all these things that you, you got to have in the future. It, it's just right. the way it's going. Uh, so it, it, I, it's hard for me to imagine um, sort of going back to the way it was, uh, but. Yeah, re- you're,
0: yeah, you're probably right. Hopefully we're yeah. going on better, and better though, right?
1: Yeah, hopefully.
0: <laughs> All right, so we're a little bit out of time here. So okay. let's see David, do you have any final questions or thoughts?
2: No, uh, thanks Dan. Uh, I always enjoy hearing you uh, speak about healthcare. Uh, you take a lot of complicated concepts and put them into language that uh, non-financial experts can understand. Yeah. So, thank you very much.
1: But yeah, You're I, welcome. I, and uh, I think
0: it's been really helpful. Do you have any final thoughts you want to share with everyone?
1: Uh, n- not 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 really. Other than you know, I, it, it is a crazy time. It, there is a lot of complexity in the issues we touched upon, but. You know, I'm a glass half full person and optimist by nature. So I think there's a lot of opportunity. Uh, You know, that even though there's challenges and and problems, I I think on balance there's a lot of opportunity. So, uh, you know, I just encourage others to to look at it that way and uh, prepare uh, and think and plan and, and, um, uh, you know, uh, take advantage of that. So, great.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us and thanks to all My of pleasure. you. Yeah. Thanks to everyone for coming to hear us at the Health Law Hotspot. Uh, we will post this as well as information on Dan and his company, Verilon, So people can check it out and reach out to you with any questions they have. You can also see our other Health Law Hotspot posts by going to ralaw.com or just Googling us and finding us on YouTube. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us. To the Retzel Health Law Hotspot is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Retzel Health Law Hotspot does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have.